Hello and welcome to Harness Your Hopes. In this series, six West of Ireland writers have written a new short story on the theme of harnessing hope. They're going to read it and then I'll have a chat with them about their craft and how the theme inspired them. My name is Alan McMonagall, and I'm going to read my story, The First Kiss, The Second Glass of Wine. A 99-year-old man is hobbling lengths of his garden in Bedfordshire, England, to raise money for the UK's NHS. And here I am, sitting on my backside, staring at my bitten-down fingernails and wondering where I've left the bar of soap I bought. There have to be better ways to stop myself going out of my mind. And I can't help thinking that old codger in Bedfordshire, England, has the better idea. So far he has raised eleven million. Eleven million in nine days. All I've managed to raise in the last while is my voice. It's the lad living next door to me. Listen, can you hear that? That hammering has been going all day, and a fair part of the night. The longer it goes on, the more pronounced it becomes, and every day the same. No early morning bird song for me, no rustling wind in tree leaves, or nearby rivers conversation with the stones. The soft tinkle of piano music courtesy of a Zoom live stream, forget it. I've got a whole other symphony going on next door, and it is driving me do lally. Since lockdown, I've been getting to know a few things about my neighbour. Like me, he lives by himself. And like me again, he is always up late into the night. Sometimes he's out in his back garden. 2am, 4am, doesn't matter. The other night I could hear him chanting. In his back garden. I put it down to these supermoons that seem to be popping up all the time. Mind you, it doesn't always have to be a supermoon. A crescent seems to be enough to get him going. Another thing I now know about him is that if the weather is fine, he likes to play music. And what he tends to do is pick one song and play it over and over again. Yesterday, he played the Fleetwood Mac song, Tell Me Lies, 15 times in a row. That's more times than I've washed my hands this week. I wouldn't mind, but I used to like Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie. Over and over again, he played the song, even joined in with the chorus. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies like it had become some sort of mantra or a command. I think it's connected to this thing he has for the moon. The hammering definitely has something to do with it. The hobbling man in Bedfordshire has now raised 13 million. Occasionally the hammer is replaced with a saw. I find that I welcome its sporadic arrival. It's rhythmic back and forth, 
edgy and all as it sounds, doesn't irritate me as much as the hammer's constant thud, thud, thud. Who am I trying to kid? Put a hammer and saw in my hands right now and pity the first person I encounter. I've tried coming up with other ways to divert myself. Movie watching, wine, a two-kilometre walk, more or less in that order though I have noticed that the movie-watching and wine tend to go hand in hand. Last night I sat through four movies, with a bottle of wine for each one. Cabernet, I've discovered, goes well with romantic comedy. Merlot matches up perfectly with edge-of-the-seat horror. A full-body Shiraz, I find, eases the strain of reading subtitles. The Rioja. I save for neurotic psychodramas. Look, I heard an old woman cry out along my two-kilometre walk. Even the rainbows are social distancing. The hobbling man has now raised 16 million. Hear that? It's getting late, and this is what he has decided to do. I wonder what kind of a drill it is. It's definitely not a black and decker. A DeWalt? Forget it. This is most definitely the sound of a cheap brand drill. A special buy picked up in Aldi for a song, for instance. Jesus, would you listen to it? He's obviously making something. But what? An item of furniture? A container of some kind? A wooden box? And what does he want with a wooden box at this hour of the night? I have also tried diverting myself with games of Scrabble. I have even conjured an imaginary opponent who is keen and doesn't try to bend the rules. Earlier she made the word tequila and was so thrilled she let out a big whoop. Two turns later she pluralised it and landed a triple word score, whoop whoop and a living room jig to boot. She is good company for an hour or two, and I have a tendency to let her win. Maybe I should invite her to watch a movie with me, share a bottle of red wine. Maybe I should invite her along when I go for my two-kilometre walk. Man alive, that drilling is doing laps inside my head. The hobbling man has now raised 19 million. Another thing I now know about my neighbour is that he likes Indian takeaways. I know this because an Indian takeaway meant for him has been accidentally delivered to my door. Like my neighbour, I so enjoy a spicy curry, especially if it has been done with lamb, which I see this one has. To my delight, there is also a tiger beer. It will make a pleasant change from the wine. Tonight there's to be a special moon, one that doesn't come around too often, a pink moon. That's what they're calling it on the news. It should be high in the sky sometime around midnight. And wouldn't you know, it's going to be a clear night. He'll probably be out for hours. I think of him in his back garden, chanting at recent slivers of 4 a.m. moon. What will he be like when this pink moon appears? My next attempt at diverting myself involves opening my book. 
It's called The Book of Embraces by Eduardo Galliano. A book gifted to me some time back by a woman I didn't realise I really liked until it was too late. The book is a confectionery of story, dream, parable, paradox, memory, reflection, anecdote and observation, all delivered with the author's singular wit and wonder. I have just finished an especially humorous yet poignant story involving the distracted driver of bus number 68 in the city of Havana. The driver has vacated the bus upon spotting a woman he has the hots for, and the passengers are getting worried when hours later he still hasn't returned. I am very curious as to how the story will play out, when my ears detect a brand new sound from my neighbour's garden. A sound that can only be described as a shovel going into earth. Yes, though my ears are only fair to middling, they do not deceive me. My next door neighbour is digging in his back garden. This isn't good. What do you suppose he's up to? I ask my imaginary companion, when I invite her to join me for our nightly game of Scrabble. She looks at me as though to say, What is who at? Let's watch a movie, she says, when she has well and truly whipped me at Scrabble. And she slumps noisily into my beanbag and pats the vacant space beside her. Unable to think of anything better to do, I oblige. That night I have a Covid dream. Another one. I am in my favourite pub. Friends, musicians, die-hard regulars, others I haven't seen in ages, including the woman I didn't realise I liked until it was too late. The whole lot of us, locked in and making merry. I've just started into some very promising catch-up talk with the woman I like when the ringing telephone wakes me up. It's a hoaxer telling me all my money is gone unless I take immediate action. Action that involves divulging all my banking details, PIN numbers, passwords and so forth. I hang up, jump back into bed and spend the lifelong day trying to crawl back inside that dream. Later, I take out my book. I pour a glass of red. I pour a second glass. Presently, my imaginary friend turns up. She's looking especially appealing tonight. She has tied up her raven-coloured hair and her violet eyes are sparkling. We are all mortal until the first kiss and the second glass of wine, she says, when I offer her a tipple. Then we clink glasses. Put on some music, suggests my imaginary guest, and I oblige. Dim the lights, she says, once the slow jazz has kicked in, and again I oblige. We're dancing cheek to cheek, and I'm looking forward to what happens next when the drilling next door starts up. It's definitely an Aldi special buy. Don't you think so, I say to my companion. To be sure, I lower the jazz, and at once I'm listening to my neighbour belt out a song to accompany his drilling. It's Fleetwood Mac again, though this time the song is Go Your Own Way. 
and I can't decide which is worse, his singing voice or the Aldi drill. When I go to refill her glass, my imaginary friend has called it a night. I pass the following days in a fair to midland stupor. I sweep the dust-defying floor, scrub my knuckles white. I play Scrabble by myself and still lose. I read my book. I stay up late and watch movies from Hong Kong, South Korea, Turkey and Japan. The farther away the better, though I cannot honestly say why. I listen to the neighbour hammering, sawing, drilling, digging. I listen to the music he blasts out of his kitchen stereo. I try not to listen to his singing. On my two-kilometre walk, I overhear someone say life cannot be one continual orgasm. I buy a bottle of Riaka to go with some Turkish psychodrama. Home again, my neighbour is still singing. I reach for the red wine. I wish I were deaf. The hobbling man has now raised 24 million. I try looking up some things about people who follow the moon. It might provide a clue as to why my neighbour is digging his back garden in the middle of the night. Is he looking for long-lost treasure, I wonder? Does he need to hide something? Bury something? Something that goes in the wooden box he has been making? Something that can only be buried under cover of dark, when he is certain that no one is looking? I cannot find out anything conclusive. In my back garden, I step over to the wall separating me from my neighbour, clamp my good ear to it. I hear his foot pressing against the shovel, the shovel excavating more earth, no apparent end in sight. When I hear what can only be described as a large container being dragged over ground, I'm tempted to elevate myself somehow and peer over the lip of the wall but I'm afraid of what I might bear witness to. Once back inside, I discover that another bar of soap has gone missing on me. I receive an email from a good friend. She has planted 750 potatoes, 500 onions, too many other things. She says she likes counting. I have a sneaky suspicion I am becoming interested in numbers myself. I go for my two-kilometre walk. I catch a glimpse of a heartbreaking sundown. I queue at the shop and buy twelve bottles of red wine. On my way home, I pass a woman sitting on a deck chair with a bottle of gin, warbling over and over the line, If tomorrow never comes. If tomorrow never comes, we won't have to listen to your warbling, I'm tempted to say to her. On my road, a father and son are performing push-ups and lifting weights. The hobbling man has now raised 29 million. It's a balmy night and the moon is high. I open a bottle and sit out on the patio step. Clink, clink, the hobbling man in Bedfordshire. Next door has changed the record. Tell me lies and go your own way have been replaced with the song It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. I brace myself for the hammer 
and the saw, and the drill, and the shovel. But no, it's just his singing tonight. Ah, let him sing, says my imaginary companion when she turns up. Let him play his music and yodel up the moon to his heart's content. After all, we have each other. We can tuck into another delicious curry that accidentally ends up on the doorstep. Tiger beer, too, plenty to go around. Get the scrabble out, and oh my, I have just scored big by using all my letters to form the word isolate. Oh, that's very good, my scrabble partner declares. I really ought to come up with a name for her. Tell me, Sharon. Could I interest you in a glass of red? A robust and complex Rioja, perhaps. Next Door is now playing Died in Your Arms Tonight, volume cranked to eleven. I shake my despairing head. Would you ever listen to that? Sharon refills our glasses, tells me she can think of worse ways to go. The hobbling man in Bedfordshire has now raised... 32 million. Well, I've been asking everybody on this podcast, when did you figure out you wanted to be a writer? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I think I figured it out, actually, not once, but twice. Um, the first time when I was very small, you know, I lived in a room with parents who were big, big readers, Irish teachers, English teachers, language teachers, floor to ceiling, um, bookshelves. It was all there right in front of me. I remember a shelf of Agatha Christie, who donuts, you know, with um, the famous Belgian sleuth Hercule Poirot. And I also remember an anthology of ancient Greek myths and legends. There was probably some Roman and Irish stories in there too. But um, yeah, I remember devouring that particular anthology start to finish and um, immediately proceeding to churn out my own uh, versions of, of The Wooden Horse of Troy and The Labours of Hercules and and. In a kind of a weird way, um, meshing the Agatha Christie style um, mystery whodunit stories with with these um, ancient myths. I remember I naming my sleuth Hercules Poirot. I thought it was a genius altogether. <laughs> Teenage years came and went. Um, by and large, my twenties came and went. Um, before I realised that, um, or began to realise that, yeah. Um, there's a gaping void in my life that uh, that needs to be filled. And I realised that, yeah, I had um, unfinished business with this um, writing malarkey. And so, yeah, um, I, I returned again, um, yeah, around about the age of 30. And I've been going since. And in terms of the writing, do you have to treat it like a job? Like, do you have to make yourself sit down and write a certain amount of pages or sentence a day, or do you kind of have to wait for the creativity and the ideas to strike and then you're right? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, there are, there's probably uh, an array of answers to it, some of which you've touched on in your, in, in, in your question. I'm always, you know, slightly, maybe not suspicious, but of 
afraid of, of, of words like job and task and chore, anything that makes it feel like it's going to be somehow onerous um, and something that might discourage you, you know, putting your bum on the chair in front of the desk and staring at the blank page. I mean, I, I tend to steer away from what I tend to do is um, trick myself into what I'm doing is going to be, you know, certainly something achievable. I'm not so sure if enjoyable is, 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 is the answer, even though ultimately it is its own reward. I mean, there's no wonderful, there's no feeling like it or no feeling so wonderful as completing um, a story, a poem, a scene or a chapter of a novel in progress. And um, there's no feeling like it when you realise that, you know, the idea that sparked a piece of writing is actually going to um, get over the finish line. What I tend to do is, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't set myself a prescribed daily word count. But I do try to complete maybe a decent page or a useful scene or even um, complete a paragraph that I will be happy enough to read over a few times myself. And that can take, you know, you can be chasing the sen a, the, the, a sentence that completes a paragraph eight, ten hours after sitting down on any given day. On other days, on nuts which are not nearly so frequent, um, a scene just presents itself in technicolor, in, in, in crystal clear clarity and maybe a scene that could go for three pages. It just comes out in one beautiful rush of, of creative energy and an hour and a half that might take and you feel like your writing day is done. And you actually feel guilty for the rest of the day because it has taken such a brief spell of time. But um, yeah, these are the few and far between days. A lot of the time, I find that you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're chasing, you're, 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 you're chasing all the time, whether it's a character um, trait that you're that you're trying to uh, alight on, whether it's a, a descriptive passage that you want to get right, or whether it's a couple of pages of dialogue that you want to just just fly off the page. It can take a while. So the story you just read for us, tell us a bit about it. You know, it's it's set really during the lockdown. Were you writing yeah. it during the lockdown or is it kind of looking back on that time? Or It's a little bit, again, it's a little bit of both. I tend to come with a delay mechanism, actually, just to res respond to the latter part of that good question. You know, yeah, if there has been an experience or a stretch of life that entails a fairly intense experience, you know, the pandemic, my God. Um, I might be scribbling notes, writing down things that I hear, things that I see, trying to collect some of my own um, observations and reflections about it, noting what I'm doing myself, as is the case in this particular story, noting what others around me are doing as well. And when you are confined to a narrow corridor, um, that the lockdown pretty much um, dictated for long stretches at a time. I found that the antenna was that little, that little more finely tuned in to what was going on in my immediate vicinity. So really it began on the patio step. Um, I remember the summer of 2020. It was really, it was quite a good summer, you know. It was good sitting out weather. So I was outside on the step quite a lot 
listening really to what was going on next door and then allowing the imagination run with that as opposed to actually finding out <laughs> what was going on per se. And so, yeah, the story began to to form, if you like, as a series of, of fragments and, and snatches of, of, of um, things that I'd seen out on the two-kilometre walk, things that I might have overheard while out and about and indeed just sitting out in the garden during that fine summer. I think it was your own brief, Alan, um, that phrase that you had, something that might harness an element of hope. And it was my partner, Fanula, that alerted me to this um, Major Tom, who was literally pacing his own garden to, to, to raise money. And he just seemed to be pacing nonstop, like a, it was almost like a modern day Forrest Gump with, on a, with a Duracell battery on him, this guy. <laughs> And the amount that he was raising kept going up and up and up. So that became, if you like, a kind of that coda that I thought might um, supply that little bit of hope for um, what was for many, let's face it, a pretty dark time. And there's great humour in the story. How important is it for you to include humour in your work? Well, again, just to continue on from that you know, theme of darkness, I think... I think humour is essential, really. I mean, ultimately, I think we laugh and cry at the same things. I think um, somebody out there, I might, it might have been one of the Russians and it might have been stolen from Chekhov or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky at some point, that um, comedy equals tragedy plus time. So again, there's that little bit of time after what was quite an intense experience that maybe allowed us to look back and capture the moments that put a smile on the face as well as capture the moments that uh, were making us very much uh, cry and weep and, and feel anything but happy. I think um, inserting a little bit of humour into a story can, low, can throw light on the moments in a story that are anything but humorous and vice versa, of course. I think a lot of writing um, becomes a balancing act. It's almost as though you're on on a high wire, on a tightrope, just trying to steer, you know, your way through the warp and whoop of of a given narrative and um and just trying to get the balance right, yeah, between between light and darkness. You've written novels and you've written short stories. So what is the difference in the two, in writing the two? I think with a novel, uh when you're working on a novel, you you must write on. You know, it's just a long way, a novel. It's a, it's a journey. It's, a, it's an adventure. It's a misadventure. It can, be, it can be an adventure and a misadventure that can quickly proceed in every direction other than the one that perhaps it ought to. So you can find yourself going down um, side alleys and um, making detours that become cul-de-sacs. So it can take a long way. Whereas... With a short story, you know, the, the short story form, it just thrives on brevity and concision and suggestion and implication. And for that reason, it, it, it also thrives on omission. What is left out of a short story is as important as what is finally left in um, a short story. And therefore, what I find with a short story is that um, it's actually the exact opposite than with a novel. The... The story has begun sometime before the writing actually begins. So what's next for you, Alan? What, what are your future plans? 
Oh gosh, I'm always vacillating nervously and fretfully from from one project to another. And there's always a few stories crying out for attention, stories that might have been started, you know, a good while ago, that delay mechanism again, but, you know, it's time to chop, chop and maybe um, <laughs> give them a little bit of uh, time and nourishment. Um, I always have a couple of ideas or loose ideas for plays, stretches of dialogue that I that 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 um that I think might have a little bit of energy and that I nudge along. And of course, you know, there's always the the slow accumulation and long haul that is the novel. So always trying to make time for uh just to nudge along another another another, yeah, long haul project and uh get it get it that little bit closer to uh finish line. Okay. Thanks, Alan. You're very welcome. <laughs> Harness Your Hopes was produced and presented by Alan Meany. Music was by Eamon Bailey. The writer on this episode was Alan McMonagall. The programme is supported by a Creative Ireland bursary from Galway County Council. <laughs>